Wow. Hello. Y'all in the Christmas spirit yet? I told Dan about, about the projector light. Anybody found out that technology yet, the projector light? Yeah, so I'm terrible at decorating my house because, you know, I never did it. And the projector light just makes life so easy, doesn't it? Pop it in the ground. House is lit up for Christmas. How nice. So years ago, this is B.C., before I was a Jesus follower, before Christ, I spent a semester in school in Germany. And looking back, of course, it was one of the most impactful experiences of my life. It was way out of my comfort zone. I'd never left the country before that time. One of the things I did while I was over there is I tried to explore as many of the 1,300 cathedrals, I didn't get to them all, in the country as I could. Because for some reason that I couldn't explain at the time, I just loved cathedrals. Like They just had this, this feeling about them. And every cathedral I visited made me want to see another one. And before long, I was interested, all right, these are really cool buildings. What's going on? What's, what's going on with the religion that's behind these buildings? And even though, as I, I shared before with you guys, I really didn't know anything about Christianity in those days, just something about those buildings gave me this spiritual feeling, something akin to the presence of God. I didn't know if I felt it then, or at least to the existence of God. And it was about a decade later that I was actually introduced to God, the God for whom these cathedrals were built. And I was introduced to God when I asked a coworker the reason that he always seemed so joyful when nobody else around us was. And he shared with me the gospel. And this is the verse that he had me read. This is the first Verse of the New Testament I ever read, Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And my friend told me about a God who loved the people that he had created so much that notwithstanding their brokenness, notwithstanding their habit of ignoring him, notwithstanding the fact that they were wayward, they followed their own Thoughts and ideas and desires instead of looking to God for his. Notwithstanding all of that, he sent his one and only son to sacrifice his life so that God's people could spend their eternity in his presence. And in return, God asked that they live their lives loving him and others and then helping other people to get to know about him also. Now to me, God like that was impossible to resist. That's an irresistible God. When I heard about God, I wanted to be connected to him. And I knew that I would spend the rest of my life telling other people about him. And I thought it would be a pretty easy job. Because why wouldn't anybody want to know and believe this? And it seemed to me whether or not people believed it, everyone would want to believe it. They'd want it to be true. Now, of course, I understand that many people don't believe that it's true. And they don't believe that it's true for a number of reasons. Maybe someone's had a bad experience with the church. Or maybe someone's had a run-in with church people. Maybe they were taught to be skeptical about religion in general. Maybe they've been watching TikTok too much. And they just think, oh, we hate that. 
but they don't know why. Maybe people believed at one point in their lives, but over time, people and circumstances and situations and teachers and professors and naysayers caused them to abandon their beliefs and, and adopt other beliefs, other notions or understandings about the world that seemed to them more tangible. And I understand all of that. I understand the cynicism and the skepticism. But once I understood what a faith in Jesus, what a following of Jesus means was all about, I was still wondering why. Why wouldn't anybody want this to be true? The 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. When I talk to my kids and I ask them, okay, you know, where are you guys trending and what are you believing these days about God, about the world, about society? It's never based on proof. It's always based on what feels good, what they find attractive. People are more likely to form their opinions based on emotions than based on evidence. If people want to believe something because it's attractive to them, they will believe it. In the beginning of the Jesus movement, it was very attractive. Jesus was very attractive. How do we know that? Because we've seen so many times in reading through the Bible that Jesus always attracted a crowd. And early Christianity, the name eventually associated with the Jesus movement, Christianity, was very attractive. Early Christianity was so attractive, in fact, that it eventually became the predominant religion of the entire Roman Empire. And Christianity would go on to become the basis for all of Western civilization. And there was one thing in particular that stood at the center of the attractiveness of Christianity. It's a thing that, if understood, would make everyone in the world want Christianity to be true. And that thing is a word. And that word is grace. We all desire Grace, and we especially desire grace when our guilt is called out. How does that work? Well, when we were young, we all wanted grace when we did something wrong. When we came home later than our parents told us we were supposed to come home. Or when we broke something in the house. Or when we accidentally smashed our little brother's face in with a football. We all wanted grace. And as students, we all wanted grace when we got caught goofing around in class with Michelle Mushrow that got us sent to the principal's office. I wonder if Michelle's ever listened to these sermons. I don't know. Sorry about that. We all wanted grace when we were called out for looking at the test of the person next to us or when we skipped school one day but were seen at the mall by our English teacher. As I understand some of those things happen to people. As grown-ups, we still want grace. We want grace when we come home later than we said we're going to come home and our spouse is still waiting for us and they're not happy with us. We want grace when our, when our boss or our supervisor asks for a progress report on the project that we haven't even started yet or wonders why our best customer hasn't been heard from since we said that really dumb thing. At one time or another, everybody wants grace. Grace is when you get something good, that you simply don't deserve. When we've been caught in a bad act, all we want is grace. On the other hand, and this is where the problem arises, 
When we catch somebody else in a bad act, the last thing we want to extend is grace. When we're on the receiving end, when we receive something good, when all we really deserve is nothing good, we love grace. We know that grace can be life-changing. Grace can be truly, as the song says, amazing. But when we're on the giving end, when we're in a position to have to extend grace to a person who's wronged us or who's wronged somebody we love, we think grace is a little bit too much. We think grace is dangerous. You've got to be careful showing people grace. What idea will they get if you show them grace? We think it's dangerous to show grace to one another. We think that showing grace to somebody is a sign of weakness. We think that grace is just too unsettling. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks as we approach Christmas this year. Because in the messed up world in which we live, Christian grace is the unsettling solution to just about everything. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for joining us together this morning, bringing our community, our ecclesia together in this place. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to worship you with our voices, with our resources, and now with our attention and our time and our hearts as we study your word. Father, we thank you for this time. We ask that you use your word to open our hearts and minds and draw us closer to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start off so we can all get on the same page. This is the definition of grace that we'll be using for the next few weeks. Grace is undeserved, unearned, unearnable favor. Grace is a very odd character. If you think you deserve grace, it goes away. Because you think you earned it. And you don't get grace when you earn something. You get grace when you don't earn something. You can ask for grace. You can beg for grace. But the second you think you deserve grace, it evaporates. Grace that you think you've earned is no longer grace. It's payment. It's a wage. And as for Christian grace, Christian grace can only be experienced in the context of a relationship. And it's always connected to the scenario in which you are the guilty party in the relationship because of something you've said or done. And God. Now, this is the thing that makes the narrative of Christianity so attractive. This is why everyone should at least want the claims of Christianity to be true. Because you get grace given to you when you don't deserve it. Now, because grace is 100% relational... This is why we celebrate the way we do at Christmas. Because we would never have known the grace of God without a relationship with God. And we would never have had a relationship with God without the presence of God in our world. For God's grace to be experienced, it had to be personal. And this is the message of Christmas. The gospel writer John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John who also wrote three letters in the first century, cleverly titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He was a disciple of Jesus. He was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the one closest to Jesus. And John was an eyewitness to Jesus' entire earthly ministry. And unlike the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John lived to be a very old man. And toward the end of John's life, he decided he was going to record the story of his walk with Jesus. 
And in writing the story or in dictating the story, John had an interesting challenge. He had to include enough detail so that people knew it, would be, it was true, but he also had to convey the supernatural events that he had witnessed in a way that people could at least consider. So he began his gospel by relating the core of the Christian faith and reflecting the heart of what Christians are all about, and in turn, what Christmas is all about, grace. So here's how John began his gospel. In John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the logos. That's the Greek word logos. Logos is the Greek word for word. That's what it means, word. But it's a bit more involved than just that. And in this context, the word logos conveys a deeper meaning. In John's day, the word logos conveyed the divine reason or the divine plan implicit in the cosmos. It's the thing that gave the cosmos its order, its form, and its reason. So with that understanding in mind, here's the fullness of what John wrote. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, now wait a minute, He's talking about the Logos, but now he's calling it a he. Who's he talking about? He's talking about God the Son. So one of, one of my pastor friends likes to say, you can substitute God the Son when you're reading John 1. In the beginning was God the Son, and God the Son was with God, and God the Son was God. God the Son was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made. That has been made in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then we jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God the son became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So in the best way that he knew how, John explained how God... The thing that gave the cosmos its order, its form, and its reason. How God, how that Logos inhabited a human body and came to earth to live among his creation. John said that the purpose of life, the master plan for the world, the explanation of all things took up residence among us. And we continue on in verse 14. We, John wrote, we have seen his glory. So when we see this, we go, all right, who's we? Is he talking about us, we? No, he's talking about him, we. And he and his friends, we. He wasn't referring to you and me. He was referring to we, as in Peter and Andrew and James and all of the hundreds of witnesses who had actually been there on the ground in the first century and seen God's glory through Jesus, God the Son, who was in their midst. Understand this. They didn't just hear about it from somebody. They didn't just read about it somewhere. They had seen the glory of God through Jesus themselves. They had seen God the Son who came to earth to represent the presence of God and who came to earth to explain to those people and in turn explain to us what God is really like. And it was God the Son. It was in him that they saw one of the most amazing attributes of God. They saw that God the Son came from the Father full of grace and truth. He came from the Father 
full of grace and truth. That statement is a game changer. So I want to spend a couple of minutes looking at it. Now notice first what John said, that Jesus came as the embodiment of both grace and truth. Now that seems simple enough, so why is it so difficult to understand? Well, let me read it again, but this time I'm going to put a different emphasis on it. Jesus came from the Father full of both grace and truth. Now here it's important to understand that John didn't say that Jesus was the perfect blend of both grace and truth. And he didn't say that Jesus was the perfect balance of grace and truth. Because a blend or a balance of grace and truth would mean, in essence, that you're 50% grace or 50% truth. Jesus was 50% grace and 50% truth. He was kind of a mixture of both. He was kind of half of each. That's not what John said. John said that Jesus came from the Father full of each grace and truth. Now, in our world, that would be impossible. That would be about 200%, which really isn't a thing in our world, even though we use it. It isn't a thing. We don't have the ability to be 200% of anything. 100% is the best we can ever do. 100% is the best we can ever hope for. Even though we say, I'm giving 110% effort, we're not really. There's no such thing, okay? But Jesus isn't constrained as we're constrained. Jesus came from the Father full of both grace and truth. Now, I know I'm making it confusing, confusing, but maybe this will help you. Jesus never, ever compromised the truth. And he never, ever held back on the grace. Jesus, without deviation, without equivocation, told the truth. Jesus called sin, sin. And Jesus called sinners, sinners. And then he showed them grace when he paid the entire price for their sin by laying down his life for them. Jesus was all grace and all truth all the time. God's grace personified in Jesus was absolutely revolutionary. God's grace unsettled the status quo. God's grace changed the world. God's grace led to the establishment of Western civilization. You can't study the history of Western civilization without understanding the Bible. But now catch this. By the time John wrote his gospel, which is basically in the 90s A.D., so roughly 60 years after the resurrection, by that time, every one of John's compatriots, every one of them, Peter and James and Paul and all the other disciples, they'd already been martyred. They'd already been killed. John was the last one left. And yet John could come along and tout how God is love. How in the world could John have thought something so crazy as that, that all of, his, all of his compatriots were martyred for believing, but John still believed that God is love? How did he believe that? Well, it's because Jesus was both full of grace and truth. Now, the reason that John was able to conclude that God is love is because Jesus, by virtue of that grace and truth, was the embodiment of love. As John said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. 
Because Jesus was 100% grace and 100% truth, we can conclude that Jesus' love, his agape love, his all-encompassing, unconditional love, was the embodiment of grace and truth. So love, too, is all grace and all truth, all the time. John knew. John was there. John saw it all. For instance, John was there. When Jesus encountered Levi, we know him as Matthew. He was the tax collector. So we go to Matthew's letter in Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And after they'd finished whatever transaction Jesus walked up to the booth to transact, Jesus got closer to Matthew and he said to Matthew, follow me. But at that point in time, Jesus hadn't yet unwrapped his grace for his disciples. You see, at that point in time, his disciples were only focused on what they had learned growing up. They were focused on truth as they saw it. And the truth that they'd learned growing up was that they hated tax collectors. The truth that they thought of tax collectors as a blood, as blood traitors. Remember, tax collectors were Jewish people working for Rome to take advantage of their own people. The truth in those days was that everyone treated tax collectors worse than they treated anybody else. They treated tax collectors worse than they treated lepers or heretics. But Jesus didn't. So he began to teach his disciples about grace. Now the first indication of grace that Jesus revealed to them was simply that he invited Matthew to follow him. Now catch this. When Jesus invited Matthew to follow him, Jesus did not require that Matthew change beforehand. Isn't that interesting? He didn't say, all right, I'd like you to follow me, but here's what you need to do. I need you to get rid of the shorts, take your backward hat off, put on some proper shoes, maybe some khakis and a polo shirt, stop cursing, stop drinking, stop smoking, and then you can follow me. He didn't say any of those things. He didn't require Matthew to change beforehand. And interestingly, right after that, we don't know how long after it, but right after that, Jesus invited or asked Matthew to follow him, and then he invited himself, Jesus invited himself and his disciples to Matthew's house for a meal. That's pretty bold, isn't it? Follow me. By the way, we're coming to your house tonight for dinner. So prepare for a party of 13. Look at the next verse. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. So we see verse 9, Jesus said, follow me. We see verse 10, he's having dinner. I don't know how long it took, but there he is. Matthew didn't write about it. But we can be pretty sure that Jesus' disciples were not too keen on breaking bread with Matthew. And they certainly weren't excited about going to Matthew's house. It had Gentile cooties. It had Jewish cooties. It had unbeliever cooties. And things only got worse from there. Jesus had Matthew invite his friends. Hey, invite some of your sinner friends. And at this point, you have to believe that the disciples were thinking, boss, you haven't even asked Matthew to repent of his sin. You haven't even asked Matthew to return all the money he's stolen from all his people. Boss, we're supposed to overlook all of that and break bread with this guy at his unclean house? That's too much. And Matthew had to be thinking weird things, too. He had to be thinking, I can't believe you're even talking to me, let alone that you want to meet my friends. Don't you religious people look down on us? I mean, my friends are nothing like you. They're they're not going to like you, and you're not going to like them. 
Well, notwithstanding that, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with Jesus and his disciples. To picture this scene, not only were the disciples likely disgusted about Jesus associating with and making them associate with the likes of Matthews, undoubtedly, that disgust was multiplied because they had to associate with all the other tax collectors and all the other sinners that joined them at dinner. Now, according to Jewish custom, eating with unclean people makes you unclean too. Which means that that dinner must have been one of the most awkward dinner parties in history. You had Jesus and the disciples kind of sitting there going like this. And you had all of the sinners going, what are they doing here? It must have been so awkward. The disciples didn't like the, the Hall of Fame caliber that the, of sinners that Matthew had brought and, and his sinner buddies, Matthew's sinner buddies, those Hall of Fame sinners, certainly didn't like the religious extremists like Jesus and his disciples who were eating with them. It was just such an unsettling situation, which is precisely when grace comes in. Grace is the unsettling solution to just about everything. So now into this awkwardness pie that's being made here. Let's layer in the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees are the religious, Jewish religious leaders who, who kept the law scrupulously. So when the Pharisees got wind of this party, they also went over to Matthew's house. Now, the Pharisees considered them the gatekeepers. They were the, considered themselves the gatekeepers. They were the protectors of truth. And they claimed that their lives were meant to be lived in obedience to God. So as such, they were always there and made it a point to avoid all contact with anyone that they deemed to be unclean. And as a result of their diligence regarding the law, it was the Pharisees who the people thought of when they thought about holy people. To the people, to the Jewish people, they looked at the Pharisees and go, wow, they're the most righteous among us. So when the Pharisees got wind of this party at Matthew's house, they showed up. But of course, they didn't go inside because, ooh, the house is full of unclean sinners. So they stayed outside, but they saw what was going on inside. And verse 11 tells us, so they asked the disciples, and I'm not sure how this went down, but they had to have screamed it in from the outside because they weren't going inside. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? So now, did they scream it? Did they tell somebody to tell Jesus that? We don't know exactly how it happened, but Jesus, they assumed, would hear it, and then he would be shamed by it because he's a rabbi. And, and that behavior is just unbecoming of a teacher of Israel. In other words, they're saying, hey, listen, if this Jesus is such a big deal, why is he lowering himself? Why is he offending God? Why is he eating with that rabble, with that motley crew? And then Jesus, probably answering in a loud enough manner to assure that the Pharisees heard it, said, hey, take that back. That's not very nice. You're triggering these nice tax collectors and their friends. You're hurting their feelings. Look what you've done to them. Is that what Jesus said? No, that is not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus made this awkward dinner even more awkward. Because remember, Jesus is full of both grace and truth. So while he's sitting at Matthew's house, and he's sitting at Matthew's house with Matthew's sinner friends, here's what Jesus says. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I always wonder if after hearing that, Matthew piped up and said, Hey, wait a minute. Look, Jesus, you're the one who invited me to follow you. 
And you're the one who invited yourself and all of your friends to my house to eat with my friends. So you're my guest. And now you're insulting all of us? You're saying that my friends and I are sick? What is up with that, Jesus? That's what I imagine that he says on the Bible. But if Matthew had said that, Jesus would have simply responded, well, yeah, (laughs) you are sick. You're stealing from your people. You're living a life that benefits you and harms everyone else. You're sick, but I still want you to follow me. Matthew, I'm here because you need me, and all of your sinner friends need me too. What must Matthew have thought? What must his friends have thought? I mean, were they thinking not for nothing, Jesus, but wouldn't it make more sense for you to invite people that are more like you to follow you? I mean, me and my friends couldn't be more different from you. You're doing everything backwards, Jesus. Who does that? And in response, I'm guessing, Jesus kind of smiled. And then he said, oh, and tell those Pharisees who are sitting outside listening to us, go and learn what this means. By the way, when you tell a person who is sure that they are the smartest person in the room, When you tell them, go and learn, you can rest assured that you have offended them. This is such a dig to the Pharisees. And then to add insult to injury, Jesus quotes their own scripture back to them. Remember, they're the experts in the scriptures. So Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's from Hosea 6.6, if you want to look it up. But Jesus made it clear. Sinners need a savior, even though the self-righteous didn't think they did. Jesus was not afraid to call a sinner a sinner, but neither was he afraid to go to their house for dinner. See what I did there with the rhyme? Jesus dined with sinners, but he didn't sin with sinners. And that's an unsettling thought, isn't it? Here's another example, one of my all-time favorites, One day, Jesus went up to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount was the core of Jewish society because they believed that at its center resided the presence of God and what they called the Holy of Holies. You've heard of that. Now, as modern Westerners, we can't even comprehend just how important and just how valuable this Temple Mount was, although seeing how fiercely Israel is fighting to keep it today, it does give us some inkling of how important it is. But the Temple Mount contained not only the Holy of Holies, but also the altar upon which the people made their sacrifices to God. And whenever Jesus went to this temple, the Roman people and the religious people got nervous because Jesus had a reputation for calling out the people whose job it was to keep the Temple Mount the same as it has always been for a thousand years. So anyway, while he's up there, Jesus began teaching And before long, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought him a woman whom they'd caught in the act of adultery. The way John told the story, apparently they had been holding that woman since the night before and they'd been waiting until Jesus arrived at this holiest of places to bring her. So we go to John chapter 8 verse 3. They made this woman stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and they said to him in in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? 
Jesus. The law says she needs to be executed for her crime. She needs to be stoned to death. Jesus, what say you? But Jesus knew what they were up to. John 8, 6 tells us they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. So he called their bluff. What does that mean? It means Jesus knew they weren't going to kill her in the holiest place in Jerusalem. But the woman didn't know that. She must have been terrified. And her religious leaders were showing her absolutely no compassion. Her religious leaders weren't interested in mercy, and they weren't interested in love, and they didn't want to hear her backstory, whatever story she might have told them to try to explain her actions. They were just interested in getting Jesus, and they didn't care if the woman was collateral damage. But Jesus took action. Here's what Jesus said. Okay, let any one of you who is without sin you self-righteous religious leaders, be the first to throw a stone at her. By the way, that's a, a wonderful moment of sarcasm, you see, because Jesus knows nobody out there is without sin. Jesus said, oh, wow, you guys are the experts in the law, eh? You must be right. You know what? Go ahead and stone her. In fact, let the one of you who is the most holy, let the one of you who is without sin completely, you start the killing. And this is an interesting part of Scripture. Then Jesus kneels down, and he starts writing something in the sand. Lots of ink has been spilled trying to figure out what Jesus is writing in the sand. Truth is, we don't know. If you're curious, write it down. Make that one of the questions you ask Jesus when you get to heaven, okay? But the religious leaders at this point, I mean, they knew they'd been had. Check and mate at this. Those who heard, began to go away one at a time with the older ones first. This is the fun part about being a little bit older is you wise up a little bit. And these older guys had been in this situation with Jesus before. So they just said, "Uh uh-oh, we did it again. They took their lumps and they moved on. And before long, only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. And then Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she answered, no one, sir. And Jesus followed with the answer that I'm guessing she hoped for, but she never dreamt was possible. She never dreamt that she would receive the answer, then neither do I condemn you, as Jesus declared. And then Jesus said something more, but he didn't say, hey, I understand you've had a rough life. Who could blame you? Your father, he was a jerk, he was absent, your mother didn't show you any love. Seriously, what did anyone expect of you? You're good. Now run along, you little rapscallion, after which he tousled her hair and sent her on her way. That's not what Jesus said, okay? He didn't do that. After telling her that he wasn't going to condemn her, Jesus said to her, now go and leave your life of sin. So, yes... You are guilty. You are a sinner, truth. But also, no, I'm not going to condemn you, grace. Or, I'm not going to condemn you for sinning, but now cut it out. Leave that life of sin behind you, truth and grace in full. Jesus introduced to the world the perfect formula of 100% grace and 100% truth. All grace, all truth, all the time. And even if you find this tough to believe, you should desperately want it to be true. Time and time again, Jesus encountered the lives of unrepentant or pre-repentant. 
By that I mean maybe someday they're going to repent, but they weren't repenting then. But he encountered the lives of unrepentant or pre-repentant people, guilty people, and he invited them to follow him. Jesus pursued people who had not yet acknowledged their sin and initiated relationship by inviting them to follow him. And there's more. In Jesus' crucifixion, we can see one of the most unsettling expressions of grace there ever was. It's found in chapter 23 of Luke's gospel. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. Two men were crucified along with Jesus. Both of them were revolutionaries. Both of them were criminals. And the first century, century religious leaders and the first century politicians couldn't handle how unsettling the arrival of grace and truth was. So they determined that they would do whatever they had to do to fix their problem, to get rid of their problem. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus. They are along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And the people stood and watched and the rulers sneered. And they said to Jesus and to each other, huh, you got to feel, you got to feel just the, the bile in their voice. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then one of the criminals who was hanging there with Jesus started insulting Jesus. He was going to end his life as he had lived it, filled with anger and vengeance. But the second criminal, the other guy on the other side, was different. He rebuked the first guy and then said yet another thing that pointed to the fact that Jesus wasn't just some religious guy. He was exactly who he said he was all along. Now we read the Bible, we just sort of read it. We just read it one sentence after another. But, but the words were actually uttered while these men were in the process of dying, a horrible, painful, torturous death. They were struggling for each breath. They were thinking, my next breath could be my last. I need to conserve my energy. But undoubtedly, through unimaginable pain, this second criminal said to the first criminal this in verse 40, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence... We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He's talking to the other criminals saying, we deserve to be up here, but, but this man has done nothing wrong. In other words, this guy was saying, if the kingdom of heaven is reserved for good people, we don't have a chance. We don't have any hope. But then in an act of desperation, the second criminal turned to Jesus anyway, and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, Jesus, I know you're different, and I have... No doubt that where you're going is different from where I'm going. Jesus, I know you're a king. So when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? And now when we read this, we might think, what was the point of that? What good would it have been to repent for this guy? He's dying on a cross. This second criminal had no time left to make restitution for all the wrongs he'd committed. The second criminal had no life left to devote to Jesus. He had no life left at all. He had nothing to give. He had nothing to offer. He had nothing to promise. But in that moment, once again, Jesus disturbed the way that things had always been. In that moment, Jesus introduced that unsettling thing that his followers were so unaccustomed to. The thing that they'd never imagined he would take this far. At that moment, Jesus did the unfathomable. Jesus listened to this criminal and responded. Does God hear the prayers of sinners? Of course he does. Those are the only kind of prayers there are. So pushing through inconceivable pain, Jesus answered the guy. Why? 
Because that's what grace does. Grace always answers the call. And Jesus said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see what happened? Jesus promised a man who'd done nothing good and had nothing good to offer. Jesus promised a man who had no bargaining power. He said, where I'm going, you're going too. Jesus promised that man the same eternity as all of the martyrs, all of the people who died for their faith in Jesus. Jesus promised that man the same eternity as Peter, who followed Jesus for three and a half years. Why would Jesus do this? Well, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Because life isn't fair. And like life, grace isn't fair. Grace is better than fair. Grace is unsettlingly better than fair. Jesus would continue on after his resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus pulled Peter aside, and Peter was overcome with shame and guilt from his sin. When he was asked, do you know who Jesus is, Peter denied it. And when Jesus was arrested, Peter ran. But Jesus pulled Peter aside and said, Pete, I'm putting you in charge of the whole thing. Nobody was less deserving. Not long after that, Jesus appeared to a man known as Saul of Tarsus. We know him as the Apostle Paul. He was a man who was trying to destroy the entire Jesus movement. And what did Jesus do? He recruited him. And he tasked him to write nearly half of the New Testament. Why? This was Jesus' way of saying, I bring grace and truth. Not a balance of each, but 100% of both. Together, always, in every situation, period. Because that's what love does. Now, there was pushback on this, and we're going to talk about that next week. I've heard more times than you can even imagine. People say, wait a minute, what about justice? What about consequences? Isn't it true that Jesus was concerned with those things too? Well, of course he was. Jesus knew more about justice and consequences than anyone. He knew that God's justice if unleashed on us, would crush us because all have sinned and nobody can pay God back. And Jesus knew about consequences better than anyone. He knew better than anyone that consequences of sin were already crushing us because every single sin, whether you believe in sin or not, every single sin, whether you believe the New Testament sin or not, regardless of how you view the world, every single sin comes with a gotcha. That's why Jesus, in his grace and in his mercy, arrived at Christmas. He arrived at Christmas to get you. This is why I can't understand why everyone in the world wouldn't want everything about Jesus to be true. When we follow Jesus, we're buying into the truth that there is a creator God who has invited you and has invited me to talk to him and reflect with him and be connected in him as our perfect heavenly father who is characterized by his grace and his truth that came down to earth in the person of Jesus on that morning in Bethlehem. Why wouldn't we want this to be true? When grace is on display for all to see, people would not be able to help wanting it to be true, even before they ever believed that it is. Jesus said it this way in Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way 
into it. The law and the prophets is referring to the Old Testament. Jesus said that the laws laid out in the Old Testament were laws to be followed until John, John the Baptist here, announced Jesus' coming. And since that time, the New Testament or the New Covenant had arrived when Jesus entered time and space. And from that time on, the good news about the kingdom of God would be preached and everyone would want to become a part of it. And this is why 2,000 years later, when people catch a glimpse of what was actually being offered, they lean in. They're searching for evidence that this is, in fact, an act of God. The good news that Jesus referred to is embodied in him. And the good news is summarized in a word, and that word is grace. And grace is an invitation, very much like the invitation that Jesus extended to Matthew. Grace is, I know all about you, the good and the bad, and I want you to follow me. I haven't forgotten what you've done, but I love you anyway. But be warned, if you follow me, I'm going to lead you away from your sin. You got that? Now come and follow me. God's grace. There is nothing like it. And at Christmas, we take time to thank God for his grace. The unsettling solution for just about everything, personified in Jesus, God the Son. Amen? We'll pick up there next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us what it means to be full of grace and truth. And though we still struggle to fully understand exactly how that works, we rejoice in the invitation to step into it and follow you with our lives. Please keep our eyes open and our heart open as we consider your gift of your son this Christmas, the one who personified your grace and truth and bids us to come and reflect the same. We thank you, God, for loving us as we are and for loving us too much to leave us this way. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen.